a revival in the church and for our nation. And then the, uh, the two afternoon sessions are going to be on uh, basically Jonathan Edwards. Um, I'm an Edwards nut. And um, tomorrow we'll talk about Edwards uh, and world missions, prayer and world missions, which ends up being, uh, uh, I think, very significant for our understanding of what revival and awakening looks like. And, um, and then, uh, then tomorrow night we'll talk about prayer uh, and revival. And then Wednesday we'll talk about um, Jonathan Edwards and the religious affections which is probably his most famous book, and he wrote that uh, in, in the aftermath of the First Great Awakening, and so it's a very important uh, subject, and then Tuesday night we'll wrap up with um, revival and preaching, and so it's, uh, it's been my prayer that God would, would use um, the ministry here, it's going to be more topical than, than what would I would normally do, but it's been my prayer that God would use it over these next few days to, um, to contribute to what you guys do every January. Um, when, when Pastor Mickey and JT got a hold of me, we had a wonderful Zoom call. I felt like we had a revival on the Zoom call. It was, uh, it was so edifying, and it was just encouraging to hear what you guys do. Um, and so if these messages can contribute in some way, then, uh, then all praise be to God. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to uh, the book of Colossians. Chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, and what we're going to do is I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to drop down a a little bit and then pick it up, um, and then you'll see why we're reading this uh, in a little bit. And so this, this is the reading of God's holy and inspired word, and it's deserving of your utmost attention and reverence. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You let your eyes drop down to verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you, have a ma- you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders making the most of your opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And that is the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we just sang of your astounding love for us. How deep the Father's love for us. And Father, most certainly as we consider your love for us, we realize that you love us not because because we are lovely. You love us because you are love. And so we give you thanks and praise, our Father, that you love us because you love us. You've given us your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the most blessed and glorious person in all of the universe. Father, you've given him to us as our Savior, as our King. And you've given us your blessed Holy Spirit who lives in us and directs our hearts and our minds to the Lord Jesus. And you've given us your Holy Word by which you instruct us. And you've given us one another. Father, we are indeed a most blessed people. We give you thanks and praise. And we now ask, Father, as we turn our hearts and our minds to to the issues at hand, we pray that your Spirit would be mightily at work in us doing, Lord, beyond anything we could imagine or think. Father, we pray that you would, even as as it says in Isaiah, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We pray that we would give you no rest until you accomplish all of your holy purposes. And so, Father, we pray that you would meet with us during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I became a Christian in 1980, 
And as a new believer, I was raised Roman Catholic, and, and as a new believer, uh, we, we were in a church where we heard all the time sermons about dedicating your life to the Lord and to his service. We heard sermons all the time about uh, living a life of greater consecration. There's actually a word you don't hear very much anymore. I used to hear it all the time as a new Christian, and that was the idea of living a consecrated life we used to hear challenging messages about, about attempting great things for God and for his kingdom. And we used to hear things about living a life of revival, of being, in a sense, continually renewed by the Holy Spirit. And so in those days, those early days, my middle teenage years, I, I, I was a voracious reader and so I just, I read anything. Now, let me just tell you, I didn't know anything either. And, but I read, I read about guys that I looked at as heroes, all right? And they'll show you how much I didn't know. I loved reading about Charles Finney. I didn't know anything. I loved reading about Dwight Moody. I loved reading about Spurgeon. I loved reading about Jonathan Edwards. I'd read uh, about their ministries, their exploits, um, the mighty deeds, um, whether those were uh, accurately reported or not. I've read of spiritual power and revival. Later on, as I, as I got into college and then later into seminary, I just continually, voraciously read about the first great awakening and the second great awakening and God's move in Scotland and in Wales and the great prayer revival of 1858 in New York. And, and, and I had this sense of, of awe at the Spirit's work and the Spirit's power, and in fact, I longed to see that in my own life. I wanted to, to live a life of radical obedience, filled with the Spirit, and live in a state of continual revival. That's what I longed for. And then as time went on, I learned about the Reformers. And I learned about their theology, and I learned about how I am actually just, I'm supposed to glorify God just through the ordinary means of grace. I'm supposed to glorify God in the ordinary things of life. I'm to live all of my life, quorum Deo, that is in the presence of God. And so whether it was being a student, you, you, you were a student for the glory of God. You studied for the glory of God. You, you took the ordinary and it, was, and it was sanctified. And it was sanctified for God's glory. And then if you were a husband or a, or a father or an employer or an employee, you, you just looked at, at, at your, your callings as ordinary callings by which you glorified God. So there was this wonderful sense, and, and, and it, was, it was refreshing to me in many ways that in the ordinary things of life and in the ordinary means of grace, I could live a life that glorified God. 
began to realize that, that my calling or callings were simply ordinary callings. They weren't, they weren't extraordinary. My, my walk with God was not going to be one of continual revival. The thunder and lightning weren't going to strike every time I read my Bible in the morning. I started to realize that it was actually in the daily disciplines of Bible reading and, and prayer and in church, church involvement that, that I glorified God just, just through the ordinary stuff, right? Getting in your car, driving down to church, walking in, fellowshipping with fellow believers, listening to the sermon, praying. Nothing big happens, at least from our perspective. I want to say bigger stuff happens than we realize, all right? But it was just, just ordinary. And I thought, okay, well, I guess I, I, I glorify God through the ordinary. But then the question was, well, what about the devil's calling to find out what the road conditions are, I guess? <laughs> The question for me was, what about those longings that I had as a new Christian? What about those longings to see God at work in my life, in my family, in my, in my church, in my country? Were those, were those, in a sense, just sort of the, the immature thoughts of a new believer and, and uh, the older saints could pat you on the head and said, well, well, that's good for now, but one of these days you'll outgrow it and, uh, and you'll really understand how things are. It's kind of interesting, about 10 years ago or so, I guess, these two perspectives, what we're just going to call radical and ordinary, were sort of summed up in, in two books. One was called Radical, okay? Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream by David Platt. The other book that came out afterwards was called Ordinary. Sustainable Faith in a Radical, Restless World by Mike Horton. And so, in a sense, the two books sort of generally... Um, deal with what we're talking about. Let me just read you just a little snippet from, uh, from Horton. He says, ordinary has to be one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary today. Who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary? Who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town and is a member of an ordinary church and has ordinary friends and works an ordinary job? Our life has to count. We have to leave our mark, have a legacy, make a difference, and all of this should be something that can be managed, measured, and maintained. We have to live up to our Facebook profile. It's one of the newer versions of salvation by works. Now, I want to say that both books make good points, but which one is it? Are we to be radical world changers, radically pursuing God, radically seeking revival and great things from God, or should we be ordinary? Now, that doesn't mean mediocre, 
and just then settle at the end of the day of, for being a, with being a good dad and being a good husband and a good worker and a good churchman, right? I hope that some of you feel the tension that I'm, that I'm talking about. You know, there's dangers on both sides. Luther said that Christians oftentimes are like drunk Germans that get up on a horse and fall off one side only to get back up and fall off the other. <laughs> on the one hand, there's the danger. So we'll just think of it this way, radical, ordinary. So on the radical side, there is a potential danger of what could be called an over-realized eschatology. All right, now I know that's probably... That's a 50 cent word. But overrealized eschatology, eschatology in a sense being um, the things of the future, right? Just simply put. Um, overrealized eschatology is where you actually expect too much out of this present age. You expect the age to come to be what marks this present age not realizing that we're living in a tension between both the already and the not yet. So, sorry if you're a Joel Osteen fan, but let me just say, realized eschatology looks like this. Your best life right now. Okay? It doesn't take, it doesn't take into account suffering and trials and heartaches, and disappointment, and slogging through this present age, certainly with the hope of the age to come. So an over-realized eschatology, let me just say it like this, an over-realized eschatology would be something like, um, I want to actually live in a state of constant, steady revival so that every time I open my Bible, boom, God meets me in the most remarkable, stupendous way. And then, can you believe it? There I was reading Second Chronicles. And boom, God met me in Second Chronicles or Leviticus. Ephesians maybe, but Second Chronicles, highly unlikely. And so sometimes we might end up diminishing the ordinary. The ordinary things like marriage and family and work and churchmanship. So on the one hand, the the potential danger is expecting too much in this life. You have to remember, this isn't our best life now. We actually have a glory which is to come. We actually look forward to the coming age. Now is there a reality in which through Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and pouring out of the Spirit that the age to come has invaded this present age for us as believers? And the answer is yes. That's what it means to be a new creation. That's what it means to be born of God's Spirit. That's what it means to be spiritually raised up from the dead. And so yeah, so there are, there are realities, but I'm not there yet. Well, there's another danger on the other side. And that is, in a sense, an underrealized Christian experience. And so, in a sense, 
Somebody might give up the the radical and the extraordinary and then just begin to just kind of settle, as it were, for, let's just say, a formal Christian life. A life that you you could summarize as just checking the boxes. I read my Bible today. I said my prayers today. I almost witnessed to that guy at work. Okay. And what ends up happening is, is that, a, that, that sort of a formalism and just making sure you're living an upright life begins to be a substitute for having a genuine passion for God. And the status quo can end up being a, a substitute for longing to commune with God. And so... The hunger diminishes and low expectations can settle in and our Christian life can be simply reduced to reading our Bible, saying our prayers, going to church. No hunger for communion with God. No longing to know more of Christ. And I want to say both sides are dangerous. Both sides are dangerous. On the one hand, the overrealized eschatology part can lead to incredible disappointment. And by the way, um, either disappointment with God, God, you're not coming through, or disappointment with ourselves, I must not have enough faith. And on the other hand, being just settling for a status quo that is reduced to just a formal thing cuts the life blood of wanting to really know and walk with God. And so, what do the scriptures actually say to us about radical and ordinary? Well, I have about 29 scriptures here, so I hope you guys are settled in and happy that you're in a warm building. Let me just summarize some of these. These, these, are, these are all going to be familiar to you. You hear a text like this, Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. And though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my inheritance forever. Now, does that sound like a radical text to you or an ordinary text to you? That sounds radical to me, right? I don't want anything in this world but God. God's everything to me. He's the strength of my heart. And even though my body may fall down and collapse and I drop dead, God is my inheritance and I live for him. Psalm 85, revive us again, O Lord, that we may rejoice in you. So that's kind of of the radical side of things. Like, revive me. By the way, you go to Psalm 119, and at least six times the psalmist prays that God would revive him according to his word, according to his loving kindness. You have other passages, of course, where Jesus says that 
uh, if you're going to follow me, you got to take up your cross, and, uh, and you need to follow me daily. You need to confess me before men. And there is this, there is this wonderful sense of um, if, you, um, if you don't hate mother and father and sister and brother for my sake, you're not worthy to be my disciple. And there is this sense of radical discipleship. Jesus is absolutely worthy of me letting goods and kindred go and to follow him and to follow him with everything that I am. And I read that in the gospels over and over and over and over again. When I was a new Christian, we used to sing, the theology when you're a new Christian, you don't really think too much about it in the songs, right? But sometimes those songs, even though the theology is not the best, they express a sentiment that is reflective of your heart. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. You know what? That's the, that's the pulsating heart of somebody that really does want to follow Jesus with everything that they are. You have other passages, of course, throughout Scripture where, where you read, for instance, so here's Paul and he says, you know what, I don't even care about my own life. All I really care about is that I finish the course that God has set before me. That's all that matters. That translates from Acts 20, 24 over to Philippians 1, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so there's no shortage of passages in the Bible that, that in a sense, um, uh, compel us to live a life of, of seeking God, pursuing God, loving God above everything else. And then you, then you get to books like Galatians and, and to be actually walking in the spirit, not fulfilling the desires of the flesh. And you say, wow, it seems to me that there's much more about this Christian life and about the role and work of the Holy Spirit than I presently am tasting and I want more. By the way, if you, if you can never say that, you've just taken your spiritual temperature. What about the passage we just read at the opening in Colossians chapter 3, right? And Paul says, for you've died in your life is hidden with Christ and God. Seek the things above where Christ is. Okay. You go, that's amazing. Those texts, those texts make me hunger to be hungry. Those texts drive me to thirst to be more thirsty. But those aren't the only kind of texts that you have in the Bible. You have other texts where, for instance, you can take a look at this if you want. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
I'll read it to you. Paul says, verse 17, he says, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. Has anybody been called in uncircumcision? He's not to become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Each man must remain in the condition in which you were called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. And so here's Paul, and he's telling the Corinthians, you know what? God's assigned you a a certain station in life. That station is your calling. Be happy about it. Live in it. Right? That sounds actually pretty ordinary. My dad delivered, my dad drove for UPS. He drove the feeder trucks, carried a set of doubles up and down I-5 in California for 38 years. And I got to tell you, that seems to me, I hope he never listens to this sermon, but that seems to me like, that's got to be like one of the most boring jobs ever, right? Seriously, my dad started working for UPS when Ronald Reagan was the governor of California and Jimmy Hoffa was the president of the Teamsters. That's how long ago it was, all right? Now, (laughs) day after day, getting in his truck, backing up, getting the trailers together, driving down, coming back. Pretty ordinary, right? But in a sense, here's the way 1 Corinthians 7 would be like, like, Steve Borgman, God has assigned you a role, that role is to drive trucks and bring people's packages to the center so that they can go out and be d- delivered. And so, guess what? If that's the, that's the calling that God's assigned you, do it for his glory. Ordinary. Absolutely ordinary. There are other texts, of course, and the reason I read so much of Colossians is because You go from this, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, and then Paul turns around and he starts saying stuff like this. Um, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Well, what happened to like seeking things above? Paul says, hey, whatever you're doing, just give thanks to God for it. And then he starts talking to wives about being a wife. And he talks about to husbands about being husbands. He talks to children about being children. He talks to slaves about being slaves. And then he turns around and he says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men and then he gets down to masters and he says devote yourselves to prayer and he says watch your speech on the outside and so what I, what I want you to see is that Paul moves from the uh, from the radical seek the things that are above and what does that look like it looks like working hard at your job it looks like being a good mom do you know now not that I have any experience in this But do you know that you can change diapers to the glory of God? Now, my wife told me one time I should stop using that since I only changed two diapers in the entirety of all of our children's lives. But as I watched her, I was thinking, she's glorifying God. I'm not going to rob her of that privilege. (laughs) 
There are other passages. Let me just, let me just allude to, to a few for you. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 The apostle says, let's uh, back up to um, verse um, 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone's not willing to work, that then he's not to eat either. For we hear... For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus, work in a quiet fashion, eat your own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Paul says, just live a quiet life. Work hard, eat your own bread. Don't be a busybody. That seems just sort of like ordinary stuff. Paul doesn't say, go out and turn the empire upside down. He says, go and live a quiet life. Right? And, and you have other texts like that throughout the New Testament, and there's a sense in which, in which some of the instruction in the New Testament is, is actually quite ordinary. So you know the stuff that we've taught you. You know the instructions that we've given you. Just go about living a quiet life, walking in the ways of the Lord. Okay? So guess what the Bible does for us? The Bible actually presents for us both a radical vision of the Christian life, and it presents for us, if you will, a relatively ordinary view of the Christian life. So that ordinary life of faith, living out my calling, my station in life, in my home, in my work, a quiet life of faith, simply following the pattern of faith in the New Testament is a life that's pleasing to God. Nothing extraordinary about just putting your hands on the platform and keeping them there. And it sounds ordinary. Being a good dad is ordinary. Being a good husband is ordinary. Just reading your Bible, praying, leading your family, being involved at church, being a good witness for Jesus. And so at the end of the day, which one is it? All out discipleship? Seeking spiritual revival, pursuing Christ with everything I have, longing to meet, have him meet with me, or just simply the quiet life of a steady walk of faith? And the answer is, these things are not opposites. You do not have to choose. On the one hand, we should all actually seek and long for radical, extraordinary obedience. We should long for more of God. We should desire more of Christ. I think that we should actually desire to see and experience revival. And we do that as we are diligently committed to the ordinary means of grace and a simple life of faith. You know, when God has moved in extraordinary ways in the past, it has been an extraordinary move through very ordinary means by people who hungered but just were going about the ordinary means of grace. And so, 
This message is really simple. Yearn for more of God. Yearn, long to see His Spirit work mightily. And then just live a simple life of faith. In your families. You know what's, you know what's actually remarkable? Is a husband that loves his wife as Christ loved the church and is a good dad who just leads his family in the ways of the Lord. Okay. So we should all have an intense interest in seeing God move. We, we should have an intense interest in seeing God move here, right? In our own hearts, our own lives. But we should also just simply be committed to putting one foot in front of the other and doing the ordinary stuff of ordinary Christian living. Now, I don't know what time you guys usually finish, Do I have another five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes? Can I get 25? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, okay. All right. I I will do that. I will live in the fear of the nursery workers. (laughs) So, one of the things that you know is true about extraordinary works of the Spirit of God is that those are sovereign works. Okay? You, you can't put a sign up that says revival that way. All right? When, when God moves, he moves in a sovereign way. So then the question becomes, and, and, and in a sense, I think it's actually understanding God moves in a sovereign way in a revival or awakening, and I think it is actually understanding that that helps us bring both of these things together. And so uh, Richard Owen Roberts, I have a few books that are favorite on revival, and his which is just called Revival, is one of my favorites. And he says this, and you guys know this, no amount of human effort can produce true revival. There's much that people can do. All that we can do, we should do with all our might. Did you get that? All that we can do, we should do with all our might. Men can and must evangelize. It's part of the Great Commission. Men can and must train Christian workers if we're to honor our Lord's command. We can teach new converts the way of Christ, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That too is part of the Great Commission. We can pray. This burden is placed upon every believer. We must concern ourselves with the social needs of the world to be true to the call of God and to his church. Everything God has told us to do, we ought to do. But having done it all, we must still wait upon him to do what he alone can do. Revival comes from God. The sovereign Lord of the universe must revive us again or we'll never know what true revival is. If God does not act, our churches will remain forever unrevived. 
And so on the one hand, I have this, this earnest longing to see God move, and I know that on the other hand, that that is a sovereign act of God's spirit. And so does knowing that it's a sovereign act of God's spirit diminish my longing at all? And the answer is no. Let me give you an illustration. So I have three children. They're all grown, six grandchildren. I know that I cannot do anything to save my kids. As a parent, you do realize that, right? You, you, th- there is no magical method that you employ that then results in their salvation, right? Well, if you only read the right book, then they can get saved. Or if you only use the right material, then they can get saved. So, so what do you do? What do you do when you raise your kids? You do two things. You raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You try to be consistent in what the Bible tells you in terms of raising them, correcting them, teaching them, instructing them, so forth. And you do that day after day, right? You don't just go, well, you know what? I can't save them, so, you know, I I guess they don't have to go to bed at a certain time. Or uh, I guess they... Uh, you know, I guess they can eat as much candy as they want. And Now, if you're a grandparent, it's actually okay to give your grandchildren as much candy as you want, okay? And, and, and your, your grown children will object, and then they will say, who are you? You never let us eat Pop Rocks, okay? Um, but but you, as a parent, you just do what? You just do the ordinary stuff of parenting, but you do it with an earnest dependence on the God who can save, right? So in other words, means and the sovereignty of God in in working salvation actually come together. So I I do what I'm supposed to do and then I earnestly plead with God to save them, to make them his. And I want to say that it's the same thing when it comes to the sovereign work of God in revival. You go about and you do the ordinary stuff. And as you go about doing the ordinary stuff, your heart resonates with Isaac Watts when he says, we long to see your churches full that all the chosen race may with one heart and voice and soul sing thy amazing grace, right? And so so you go about the ordinary stuff and you're completely dependent on God alone to act. Now, can you have a healthy Christian life without ever seeing or experiencing revival? And the answer is yes, by actually walking in the ordinary means of grace, doing the ordinary stuff. But as you do it, you do it with an utter dependence upon God so that your prayer is continually, God, revive me according to your word. God, revive our church. Revive Northridge Fellowship. Revive Grace Community Church. Revive your church across this land. Revive your church in such a way that it makes a massive impact upon this nation that so desperately needs you. And so you live Coram Deo, doing the ordinary stuff, 
And it's in doing the ordinary stuff that you're seeking the things above. And it's in the ordinary means of grace that you're living out being the chosen of God. It's it's in the ordinary means of grace that that you're being a new covenant, spirit-empowered, supernatural people of the future who live in the present. It's in seeking things above that wives submit to their husbands. It's in seeking things above that husbands love their wives and are not harsh with them. It's in seeking things above where masters and slaves or employees and employers actually honor and respect each other. It's in seeking things above that we're simply devoted to prayer. It's in seeking things above that we're watching our speech to outsiders, looking for an open door so that we can speak words words of grace and if you just if you just go about the ordinary stuff one foot in front of the other and you continue to have that longing guess what happens god oftentimes through his spirit will work in the ordinary things making them extraordinary and so we should seek to live in a way that i I want to see a great awakening before I die. I want to see revival before I die. I feel that over the years, God has given us little tastes of it. Uh, in, in our church, there are times where families have, have experienced something of that. But I, I want to see it on a big scale. I want to I see it so that all the unconverted people that come to our church get converted and they get so excited that they invite all their unconverted friends and those unconverted friends come and get converted. And I want to see it so that our people who have been walking with Jesus for, for 50 years, 60 years, actually are renewed and refreshed with, with, with a heart for Christ that they haven't had in decades. That's what I want to see. I want to see that before I die. But that depends upon the sovereign work of God. And so what am I to do? I'm to long for it, but I'm to live out my seeking of it in the ordinary means of grace. And so, I think that's a balanced perspective. I think that setting aside time for prayer and fasting as a church is one of those things that God can use. Because remember, God uses means. Okay? He uses means. Same in parenting, same here. And so may God help us to thirst to be more thirsty and to hunger to be more hungry. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we confess to you that so often our desires for you have been so weak. We confess to you, Father, that it is easy for us
to just revert to a formalism. We confess to you that it's easy for us to get into routines that become ruts instead of routines that long to commune with you. Forgive us of these things, Father, and we pray that that you would, in fact, revive our own hearts in these days. And we pray that you would give us the grace to be faithful in the ordinary means of grace. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you and to the word of your grace, which is able to build us up and to give us an inheritance among the saints. Amen.